Hi, I'm Linda Holmes. It's NPR's Book of the Day. Today, we're bringing you an episode of the Nerdette podcast from member station WBEZ Chicago. Each week, Nerdette host Greta Johnson helps you unwind with fun conversations, inspiring ideas, and delightful recommendations. The podcast spends a lot of time talking about books. In fact, they have a monthly book club that encourages listeners to read along and contribute to the conversation. Their pick for February is How Far the Light Reaches by Sabrina Imbler. Earlier this month, Greta spoke with Sabrina. Here's their conversation. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except sometimes the author stops by. It is the month of February, and our book this month is Sabrina Imbler's lovely science reporting meets memoir called How Far the Light Reaches. Each chapter is a reflection on a sea creature, whales or goldfish or cuttlefish, for example. But Sabrina looks at each ocean animal as a symbol of their own life experience. It's a book that's full of marvel and joy and honesty. When Sabrina isn't writing books, they're a staff writer at Defector, where they report on creatures. Sabrina, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much for having me, Greta, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Oh, can I just say, I think creatures is like perhaps the most amazing beat I've ever heard of. (laughs) I feel like the luckiest person in the world. Like I, yeah, earlier today was just looking at Footage, footage of worms in swarms, like swarms and blobs of worms. Swarm, worms, swarm, worms. Yeah. <laughs> That's so delightful. I love it. Um, okay, so I keep thinking of this book as like a sciencey memoir, which I know isn't quite the right characterization either, but I just feel like you're doing such interesting things with this one. I would love to hear kind of how you characterize the approach that you've taken. Yeah, I mean, sciencey memoir is a really, really good way <laughs> of summarizing it. <laughs> when I first um, sort of tried to sell the book, I really felt tied to the idea of calling it an essay collection. Mm. And um, when you submit your book to a lot of different editors, uh, oftentimes editors will say no, and they'll explain why. Sure. And yeah. a lot of those responses were like, this isn't an essay collection. And I remember being very like sad because I think I, yeah, I don't know. I was really tied to that genre, but it, Hmm. I think I really did approach it as sort of a memoir um, of my own experience, but also I guess portraits of the creatures that I write about. And I really wanted each piece, chapter, essay, (laughs) whatever in the book to sort of just have these two like snippets from my, my life and snippets of, of, of the life of a sea creature to sort of see how, each of these stories like illuminated the other. It's a really interesting framing. It's deeply metaphorical. You're filling in a lot of gaps. The phrase I kept thinking of when I listened to it, which was also such a pleasure. You did a beautiful job with the audio. Oh my God. Thank you. But yeah, the phrase that I kind of clumsily wrote down was that you're making connections to the natural world without assigning motivations. Mm. And it was really interesting to get to the acknowledgements of the book because you thank Hannah Seo for helping you and you quote, you wrote, helping you see how far the metaphors could stretch without misrepresenting the science. And I was like, holy shit, that's exactly it. I just thought it was fascinating. And I would love to hear how you navigated that specific aspect of the book. Yeah, I mean, thank you for reading the acknowledgments. I really went ham <laughs> on them. They were beautiful. <laughs> well, Hannah is my fact checker, and she is a brilliant science journalist um, who's currently working at the New York Times on the Well Desk mm. as a fellow. Um, but we, 
I guess, you know, I always knew that I wanted to get the book fact-checked because most books are not fact-checked, which is really scary. Um, But I knew that it was something that I wanted. And I also was really interested in working with someone who had, I guess, like experience or interest in literary writing outside of just popular science. And Mm. Hannah, they're a poet, they're a writer, they're a science writer, like it really felt like a partnership to to work with them and to look at each individual like essay and think about, you know, like, well, here, you know, you spelled this name wrong or like this is actually the temperature. Those are really easy things to fix. Um, right. But Hannah raised a lot of questions that were like, you know, is this the most precise way to describe this? Or, you know, like, mm. is this, you know, a, a blind spot in, in the metaphor, or in the comparison? And I really, really appreciated having her eyes on each piece because I think it really pushed me to be as specific as I could with the metaphors and to also, yeah, make it clear, you know, like this is a point where the metaphor fails, like to step into the essay and say, you know, like, Mm -hmm. for example, in one of the essays, which is about this predatory worm that lives underneath the sand. Um, I talk about how the worm is an ambush predator and sort of lies in wait um, to ambush its prey. And the whole essay is sort of about my experience of sexual assault. And I mm-hmm. wanted to be clear that I was not, you know, vilifying this worm as a predator. Um, it's not bad to be a predator. Like this worm has no like moral code or a brain of, uh, of like in the sense that we do. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I wanted to be really specific about the points where the metaphor did fail or did fall short. Um, and then in in the rest, just sort of let these two narratives exist side by side so that I wasn't, yeah, drawing two like overt connections between them. Yeah. I have to say, I think that was probably my favorite essay in the book because I thought you Aww. just did such a beautiful job. I think partly like... I mean, I think sexual assault is something a lot of us have found ourselves thinking a lot about, especially over the last several years or throughout the course of our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that idea of of humans kind of loving a predator narrative was just something that I had never really thought of in that framing before. Yeah. I mean, do you watch a lot of nature documentaries? I don't. Maybe that's why. (laughs) I mean, I I think they are changing. and sort of expanding their framework uh, in in more recent years. But I just remember, you know, in in science class, like in high school or something, just watching these videos of like, you know, the Arctic fox killing the hare or Mm -hmm. the orca killing the seal. And I was, you know, sort of like, struck by the wonder and like the prowess of of these creatures, but also sad that, you know, the seal was never really the focus (laughs) of the documentary. Um, And it never really got that hero's, hero's journey. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I think that's a really good example, too, in this book that, I mean, you are not shying away from intense topics. Um, You share some really deeply personal stories about yourself. It's a really interesting combination, though, because I also, having read this book, do not know where you went to college. Like, I just thought it was a really interesting combination of sort of like what you Mm. are and aren't sharing and how you're deciding what to write about and what not to write about. I I pitched this book when I was like 25, I think. Mm -hmm. And like, 
had, when I was in college, I, you know, read a lot of like the essays on Exojane or Jezebel or like lots of sites where I feel like Mm. confessional essays were very in. It felt like a very obvious route, like as a writer from a marginalized background or two, like to sort of write about your trauma, publish it on the internet. And like, that was how you would get attention. Yeah. It seems like that can be inherently traumatic too, right? Yeah. And like, it can definitely exploit like early career writers to sort of like mining Mm. their, their trauma or, you know, the worst experience of their life to like make a name for themselves. Um, Mm. but I guess that was the mindset that I had when I was pitching the book. Um, and sort of how I categorized, how I ended up categorizing the essays, because each really focuses on like a different part of my life. But as I was writing it, I think I became, so yeah, my, my book, it was like, I sold it October 2019. Um, it was due August, 2020. That didn't happen (laughs) because of the pandemic (laughs) took me like two more years, but I'm really grateful for that time because it really made me, as I was just growing up and continuing to be a person, like it really made me think what was important to include, what was essential Mm -hmm. and also like what I could keep to myself. And I watched this really great lecture by this writer, Therese Marie Milo, who wrote this memoir, Heartberries, which is mm. just a beautiful memoir, but includes a lot of scenes of trauma. And she was talking about how there isn't some kind of moral value that comes with sharing all of your trauma and like going as deep as you can possibly go. Like that mm. won't necessarily make the essay better, make the work better, and like often comes at a cost to yourself. And I think I I was coming to that after I had sketched out a lot of the earlier essays in the book, which do deal a lot more with with trauma and pain. And like, I had already sort of had these drafts. And so I I was, you know, reworking them and cutting out scenes, you know, that I, most of the the details that I cut were about other people. Um, When I was thinking like, you know, do I have the right to tell this person's story? Like, would they want to be included in this? And, you know, the essays where I do write about other people, like my, the, there's an essay about my mother. I had a long conversation with her about it. Like we hashed it out, but I ultimately wanted to, yeah, I don't know, I guess err on the side of just sharing parts of myself that I, I mean, I really don't mind having them out there, like my deepest insecurities or like some of my, yeah, my, um, my like scenes of learning of, of being a child. But then when I was working on the second half of of the book, um, I think I really tried to pivot out of like, let me find another traumatic experience or rather like, let me look towards joy and let me like Mm -hmm. think about yeah, like the life I want to aspire to. Yeah. I, I loved how much you turned to joy. I mean, I think especially that chapter we swarm, which is about uh, a beach in New York called Jacob Reese beach, which is a queer beach. There's a beautiful line in that, in that section, um, you call graffiti at the beach. It's it's graffiti that says queer trans power. And you call it a reminder of the urgency of our softness, which just made my heart melt in the best possible way. Oh, thank you. I mean, that essay, it's, it's one of my favorites in the book, but it also has taken on this bittersweet um, tone, I guess, because I'm, you know, writing about this queer beach in New York that has these like large uh, structures that have been abandoned for many years behind them. And they used Mm -hmm. to be um, hospitals and um, sanatoriums for children with tuberculosis um, and have just been abandoned for a long time. 
covered in graffiti, kind of derelict. But um, in the essay, you know, I talk about how the buildings are going to be there forever, like after I stopped going to Reese. And this year, um, or last year, the city announced that they were actually going to demolish the buildings. Mm -hmm. And there's been like a lot of activism in the community around like preserving the buildings or instituting some kind of monument. And it seems very unclear what will happen. But I, yeah, was very glad to sort of memorialize it as it was there in the book. After the break, we are going to talk about sea slugs, octopuses, and moths. I think that I have a bias against, like, very charismatic creatures. So it's interesting thinking about the framing of this book because part of me feels like you could have done this with any other number of creatures but I'm curious like why sea creatures particularly that's a very good question and I sometimes I think like if there is a multiverse if there's like a version of myself that wrote this about bugs (laughs) or yeah about like bacteria jungle Um, or something I don't know absolutely I mean I really feel like I have spent the past couple of years like really narrowed into the ocean and I just feel like I have my head above water and I'm like looking towards land Mm. for the first time and I'm like bugs are incredible (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I mean I I have a lot of theories. Um, I guess I grew up in California uh, by this beach called Half Moon Bay where whales would beach all the time. And, you know, there are these beautiful tide pools that you can go to and just look inside and see anemones and crabs and all these beautiful um, oceanic creatures. And when I was growing up, I had really, really bad allergies uh, to anything that was vaguely like photosynthesizing. (laughs) Um, So I would go on a hike and then I would just like have an asthma attack. Um, So the sea was like a really... I feel like it was the place where I could really appreciate nature, but also like be able to breathe and (laughs) um, not be congested. And then when I was like a baby, my parents decorated my nursery to be under the sea themed. Mm. So like my first toy was Flounder, the fish from The Little Mermaid. And I had like a fish mobile. So I think I really think that like there are lots of things colluding. um, But I do know that I just, yeah, I it was never a question for me, like where to set the book, because I really thought about this book as a way to write about the ocean. And I found that my route in was using myself and my own stories. Um, but yeah, the, I guess the genesis of the book was always, it always started with the creatures. That's gorgeous. I don't know. I think too, when it comes to the ocean, you, I mean, obviously you're unpacking a lot of metaphors in this book, but there's so much with the sea. I mean, there's the light, which you talk about. There's also, you know, the fact that it's salt water and so much of our own bodies are comprised of salt. I think about the ebb and flow mm. and the tides and the moon. I mean, there's just so much to it and so much we don't know about it, which I mean, how ripe to be able to do any number of things with it then, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I think that's part of why so much of the book is set in the deep sea, which is Mm -hmm. definitely the most mysterious and unknown part of the sea. And yet still like, I don't know, I guess when I read about it and like, the news or in magazines, it's always framed as this like alien, bizarre place with all these creatures that are like ghoulish or scary. (laughs) You know, there's like that trope of like, you'll never guess, like they found this fish at the bottom of the ocean. And it's like showing you this fish that is meant to live like thousands of feet below the surface of the water under very different pressures, but it's like on a boat and it's just bloated and it Mm. looks weird. And it's like very gelatinous, just doesn't look right. Um, And just in reporting this book, I really feel like I gained just a deep appreciation of how much kinship I felt with these creatures that lived at the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. Um, However strange they might seem, however like 
differently they get their nutrients, right? Like so many creatures in the deep ocean rely on chemicals as opposed to the sun because there really isn't much um, photosynthesizing happening. Well, there isn't any photosynthesizing Mm -hmm. happening, but anything that does photosynthesize sort of drifts to the bottom of the sea in these flakes of decaying flesh or poop (laughs) called marine snow and like that's not the most efficient way to get nutrients. So a lot of creatures have evolutionarily innovated to, you know, rely on bacteria or other things. Um, But I really related to the ways, I guess, that people can spurn this way of living, you know, in in the dark depths, like living on the scraps of sun-touched society. I really felt like, you know, we were putting this kind of judgment on this other way of living that is like just as wondrous as our own and something that is just fundamentally like unknowable to us. And I found that really sacred. And it reminded me a lot of the ways in which people in the past have talked about like queer spaces Mm -hmm. um, and queer communities. And so it felt like a really, yeah, a really obvious place to look. Yeah, I was going to say it also just reminds me of uh, like a celebration of weirdness, too. Yes. (laughs) Not to take away from the queerness specifically, but I think there's also just sort of like a, oh, like a way of life we can't possibly imagine. Like, what a fucking delight, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So of the essays of the book, which was the first one that you wrote? The first essay was the one about the deep sea octopus. Um, Mm. Cool. Called Granolidini Borio Pacifica, which I learned how to pronounce for the audiobook. <laughs> um, but I learned about this octopus when I was, uh, I had a second job where I was writing aggregate of content for an ocean nonprofit. So I'd write like very short stories that were like, you'll never guess where this seal was found. And it was like this farm because it walked there, or like this sea slug looks like a feather boa. Um, <laughs> Not very good content, but I just learned a lot about different sea creatures That's in fun, that though, job. Yeah, yeah, and I, I encountered this story of this deep sea octopus, Granolidini Borio Pacifica, who was found to brood her eggs for four and a half years. And as an octopus, um, female octopuses brood their eggs in the last part of their life, which means they sit on them. Um, they sort of oxygenate the eggs with their arms. They keep them clean. And while they're sitting on their eggs to protect them from predators, they just can't move and they can't eat. And so this female octopus sat on her eggs for four and a half years mm. without eating, which is like, it just, I was stupefied by that. I had never thought that a creature could last that long without eating, but also a creature with like such a strange um but like keen intellect as, as an octopus. Mm-hmm. And I just thought about what was going through her mind, like what she was seeing, like what that experience was like for her. And over the years, I realized that the part of the reason I was so fixated on this octopus was that she reminded me of my own relationship with my mother and my own relationship with disordered eating. Mm. And so that was sort of the first time in my mind that I guess the structure of the book clicked where I was like, these two stories make sense to me together. And I think that they teach me like the octopus teaches me something about myself and like to, to juxtapose them isn't just to sort of show the similarity, but to like, yeah, unfold a Mm. deeper meaning. That's so cool. Did you end up trying to write any that just didn't end up working? Absolutely. (laughs) I, I scrapped two essays that I thought would be in the book. And one of them was directly inspired by my job writing aggregate of content where I wrote this one story that was called the sea slug looks just like Guy Fieri. (laughs) And it was about a sea slug, (laughs) Janalis fuscus, which is like 
sort of this translucent white sea slug with like little yellow tips on its um sort of like protrusions on, on its, its back. Guy and, and, <laughs> yeah, it was like frosted tips. Yep. The sea slug yep. looks like Guy Fieri. <laughs> and so I was like, in this essay, I'm going to talk about, you know, attention on the internet and like what it means to be misunderstood mm. and like why Guy Fieri is like a queer ally. Um, and then I tried to write it and it, was a fun idea, <laughs> but I, I don't think there is really much substance that I, that I could draw from it. Yeah. Yeah. So what's it been like to connect with readers since the book has come out? It's been really special. I mean, this book has really been marinating in my mind since 2017 mm. and I have worked on it alongside like many, many full-time jobs and also like a layoff. And I just feel like it was Maybe some people like writing books. This was like so hard, (laughs) so hard to do and felt oftentimes like, why am I doing this? Like, is anyone asking for this book? And um, it was, I think, especially hard during the pandemic when there were just so many other incredibly important things going on. And I found myself Mm -hmm. like very disconnected from the work and trying to remember why I cared about it. Um, But just hearing from people who have read the book and like, it has touched a part of them or, you know, has made them think about something in their life or even like turn towards the natural world or the sea, you know, to find some kind of connection. It really, I really, yeah, I don't know. I just feel really, really grateful. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I would love to know if there's a creature that you're especially resonating with these days. Um, I have been really thinking a lot about moths. Um, a couple of years ago, I was at a writing residency in upstate New York and I met a Luna moth mm. and I had never encountered like such a beautiful bug. I think that I have a bias against like very charismatic creatures. <laughs> and so like butterflies have never really tempted me, but this moth was so beautiful and also fuzzy. <laughs> like I think I was like, oh my God, bugs can be fuzzy too. And um, I read a lot about moths and I learned that Luna moths are born without a mouth. So they just spend like this final part of their life just like living on what they ate as a caterpillar and like their whole purpose is to find a mate. And I found that so, I don't know, sad, but beautiful and like strange and like we've been talking about just like weird and unknowable. Um, And I watched the moth die, which was also like really, I don't know, it was really strange and meaningful. Like I was with another writer and we just were like seeing the moth in its final stages. And I thought how precious it was to have this experience with that moth. So anyway, since then I've been like on a big moth kick trying to see moths. Um, I saw some amazing hawk moths in Joshua Tree, um, which are moths that almost look like hummingbirds like they're so chunky wow. and they have this long sort of spigot where they like suck in um nectar huh. so yeah I've, I've been thinking about moths that's really cool i love that well sabrina thank you so much for talking with me and for writing such a gorgeous book thank you so much for having me on Thank you, as always, for listening along. Now is the time, of course, for you to read this book, or you could do what I did and listen to it. Sabrina's narration is gorgeous. Either way, we would love to hear what you think of it. You can send a voice memo with your thoughts to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. 
One fun question you could answer is what sea creature you most identify with. Send us your voice memo before we tape on Friday, February 24th. And then you can listen to our discussion of the book on the last Tuesday of the month. Also, you probably already know this, but we did announce our March book club pick already, so you can get a little head start. It is Rebecca Mackay's new novel, I Have Some Questions For You, and it comes out in just a couple weeks, so now would be a great time to get on your library hold lists and do your pre-order stuff, y'all. Nerdette is produced by me, along with the fabulous Anna Bauman and the delightful Brendan Banaszak is our executive producer. That was an episode of Nerdette from WBEZ Chicago. You can find new episodes of the show every Friday. And on February 28th, the Nerdette Book Club will be talking about how far the light reaches. Listen and subscribe. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Linda Holmes. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements this week were produced and edited by Andrew Craig, Ed McNulty, Emiko Tamagawa, Fernando Nara Roman, Melissa Gray, Samantha Balaban, Anna Bauman, and Brendan Banizak. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.